You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. Great to see everybody. Uh, Yeah, like Randall said, you know, the parable of the prodigal son is, uh, if you've grown up in church at all or even been in church for more than a month, (laughs) you're probably taught (laughs) this parable. It's kind of one or, if not, the quintessential parable of that just kind of defines a lot of God's heart for humanity. But um, as we'll see uh, today, the context it's put in isn't always uh, understood as well, and there's some richness to that. Um, but I, uh, I don't know if I've said this before, but I, I grew up um, in church, but then at seventh grade, I was actually sent from public school to private school, a private Christian school, where I had uniform. Anybody else grow up with uniform in school? All right, nice. Yeah, khakis and polos, and like, you, there was no like back to school like shopping. You just got the catalog of like, what color polo do you want, you know? Um, and uh, so anyways, uh, went to Christian uh, school, high school, middle school, and high school, and then went straight to Bible college. So you can believe for, for a lot of these stories, a lot of these things like the, the prodigal son, for example, a lot of it sometimes when someone reads it yet again, I, and for me as a young man, but having years and years and years of studying the scripture, it can turn very much into a textbook. It can turn very much into like, yeah, I know the story. Yeah, God loves the lost, but you know, all this kind of stuff, you know. And I think that there is a power. I heard this phrase recently I've been kind of ruminating on that's, that's repetition is formation. And the idea is that the, the, the messages and the things that we're constantly surrounded by and hearing all the time, these things start to actually become what we know to be true. And they start to be repeated all over and over and over again. I think, I don't know if it's because of our society of shows or whatever, like we're always looking for like, what's the new Netflix show or what's the new music? I, I love, on Friday, new music comes out. I don't know if you know that, uh, but a lot of albums drop on Fridays and um, not CDs, albums on digital. Uh, but uh, they come out and I love seeing like, well, what are the new songs, you know? So anyways, there's something so fresh and it's like, I want to hear this fresh perspective. I want to hear this new information because in a lot of ways, new information feels like life change, doesn't it? It feels like that. Oh, I've never heard it that way before. Therefore, my life has changed. But if you look at it, what's actually changed, right? We're, we're, form- we're forming a new mindset, or maybe we're thinking about stuff, but unless these things are put into action, unless we're constantly seeing it and, and living this out, what's actually changing? So the, the goal, my prayer today for us, and, and in the prep that was just, for me, honestly, it just felt so so rich to just stop and say this there are things about the story that you already know, and they are so good and so true. So the first thing about the prayer is to just be reminded. Be reminded of God, just the repetition of God forming in us a heart that knows, God, knows his heart for us. But then my prayer also is to say, since we know the story so well, sometimes when you know the narrative, the details can start to pop out to you. You're not learning the story for the first time. So start looking, and I would encourage you to have a Bible with you. Don't just look at it at the screen. I'm going to point out a few things, but really look for it and see what jumps out, maybe for the first time ever, that can kind of expand the story, not just for the hunger for new information, but to help make it wide as we go deep. Does that make sense? Sound good? Um, so I want to pray one more time before we get into it, and then I want to get into this like ancient parable that we probably know so well and just see how it comes alive yet again for us this morning. So let me pray again and let's get into it. God, thank you for your word. 
I'm so thankful that your word is power. That your word, when it is not just shared, but when it is declared, when it is proclaimed, God, that is the power of salvation. And I thank you for the opportunity to be able to dive into this parable with our community here this morning and just kind of pick it apart, but also just see the beauty of your storytelling and the heart that you share and, and that your son revealed to the people um, in this day and age. Thank you for Luke. Thank you for the writing of it. We give this time to you and pray in your name. Amen. All right, so real quick, prodigal, okay? Kind of a weird word. We don't usually use it too much. We usually translate it lost or some kind of wayward or something like that, right? Prodigal, in the best translation in the Greek, uh, the best definition of it is wastefully extravagant, okay? Wastefully extravagant is kind of the, the, the main idea of the prodigal. So let's just dive into it, and we'll just kind of see. We'll, we'll break this apart, okay? So Luke 15, verse 11. And he, being Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Are there any youngest siblings in your family out there? Who's the youngest? All right, we're the crazy ones, right? The babies, the YOLO kids, right? Right, did anyone else grow up with allowance? Okay, nice. Yeah, I grew up with allowance. So I did not grow up with allowance. My dad, which I, I appreciate, nothing against allowance, but my dad was always like, well, I'll give you $5, but you have to mow the lawn. Or I'll give you $10, but you have to do this kind of thing, right? And it, it did, I think it made a little work ethic in me. Um, but like my buddy was just like, dad, I want 20 bucks. He just, you know, so it was, a little, it was interesting. <laughs> but allowance and inheritance are two very different things right? Not like, dad, I need money for a movie is different than dad. Give me what is coming to me. Give me what is owed. So why was this ask? Why is it so profoundly wrong to ask this? How do you get your inheritance? Is it from a parent who's still alive or a parent who is dead, <laughs> right? Can you imagine calling up your father right now saying, hey, dad, can we pretend that you're dead and I can have a half of everything that you're supposed to give to me. Can you imagine how that conversation would go, no. right? <laughs> don't do it, don't do it, not, don't do it, right? Here's the crazy thing, the ask is really offensive. The ask is like, you just do not do that, right? In the story, you do not do that, but he goes to his father and says, dad, give me my half of the inheritance. I wanna be basically fatherless. I wanna go off my own. I don't wanna be in your name anymore. I wanna go do my own thing. Here's what's even crazier than the ask, the father, gives it to him, right? Not only that, but what does it say? And he, being the father, divided his property between them. He gives away everything. He gives away everything to one son and to the other, okay? So the father, still alive, <laughs> gives away everything. The father in this story willingly gives up everything he has to offer to his children, now empty, there is nothing left keeping his kids to their home, to his name. And the younger, of course, takes advantage, and this is what we know so well, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered up all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. 
So again, this is a parable. It's a story. We're not supposed to get just like crazy, like in the weeds of it, because Jesus is trying to tell a narrative. But Jesus is also the most brilliant teacher of all time, right? So nothing goes to waste in the details. Um, The boy goes to a far away country, right? A different place, a different country, a whole different place than he grew up. He squanders his inheritance, and there's a severe famine. So what does he do? He stays in that place, in the famine, and gets a job. And what job do they give this boy? To feed pigs. Now, you and I might be like, oh man, that's what a dirty job. Or like, oh cool, like, I, you know, I don't mind pigs. But Jesus is a Jewish man, talking here to a mostly Jewish people audience. Pigs were very unholy. Pigs were considered wicked. Pigs were considered unclean in their society. This right here, for Jesus to say like, and they gave him a job, and what was it? To feed pigs. Like, gas of horror from the audience, right? Like, no, no way. Like, this guy's so, so bad off, right? This guy's in rough shape. Not only that, the next line, verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Not only is he with and among this unholy swine, he is becoming like the pigs. He wants to eat what they eat. He wants to get on the ground in the slop and the muck and go. He's so far gone in his sinful lifestyle that was what was once detestable is now looking delicious to him. And to further insult to injury, no one had mercy on him. And this is a key line, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. When he came to himself, came to his senses, right? He was so deep in the muck and pig slop, and his mind was so debased and clouded, he was becoming like where he was at. But what brought him out of it? What came to his mind? His father's servants, his father's generosity and goodness brought him out of his stupor. And in fact, he comes up with a plan and he comes up with a speech. Okay, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, this is his big welcome home speech. The crazy thing, if you look at that, the younger son, he's not considering returning home as the son right? Who was lost. He's considered saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I want to come back even as hired help. The hope here is that he's humbled, aware of his sin, who he has sinned against, is repentant, and has come back not to be served, but to serve. Of course, since we're here, it's kind of fun to tease this. There's a possibility this is yet another scheme of his, right? I'll weasel my way back into the servanthood, get some food, be in warmth again, right? But my guess is because it said he came to his senses, that this is true, that this is something good, that he's actually humbled and wants this. Now today, I'm going to ask you the same question twice. How does the father react to this son? Verse 20, and he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In this story, the father has no more money or inheritance to offer his son. All his inheritance is gone. He's considered already dead to his sons, but he feels compassion. And he runs, which first century patriarchs did not do, embraced him and kissed him. Like, even though this is a story, again, that Jesus is telling, what a shocking turn of events. Who does that? That does not make sense. This father should be irate. This father should not allow the son back in. It's shocking. But the son had his speech ready. So verse 21, and the son said to him, okay, here we go. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he doesn't even get to finish his speech. Right? Remember, what was he supposed to say? Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 22, but the father cuts him off, says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The power of this moment. The boy comes home humbled, shamed, broke, futureless, lost, to be a hired servant, and the father receives him as a son. What an incredible story of redemption, of forgiveness, of grace from this father that this boy did not deserve. The compassion, the slow to anger, the abounding in love kind of father is shocking here. Now pause. Before we go any further, we need to ask, who is the exact audience of this parable? Right? We know it's the Jewish people, but who specifically among the people? Go to the beginning of Luke 15. Right at the beginning, Luke 15, 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners. I dare you to name a more despicable group. <laughs> right? As we've seen in these parables, and if you just go back and you read all of Luke's gospel account up until this point, Jesus has been drawing his followers from all the wrong places. It's not the clean people. It's not the highly educated, usually. It's not the wealthy or the ones who have much to give. It's the lowly, the outcast, the ones who only have room to receive. Tax collectors, of course, were despised for bleeding their fellow neighbors dry unjustly with taxes, right? And skimming off the top for their own profit. Sinners was this generic term for anyone who failed to follow the commandments like the, like the Pharisees did. The rabble, the riffraff of the day, those sinners. But these are the types of people who are what? Drawing near to him. They would be hearing this story. And if they too were repentant, then this gospel was for them, right? They are very aware they were lost. Some of them have even embraced being the lost in society. And if they identified with a younger son in this story up until this point, and my guess is they're so inspired by Jesus that they want to hear him, their hearts are turning to him, they would see such incredible hope and longing in this story, right? This is what they've been wanting for so long. They are the ones who have squandered what they were given. 
They've been the outcast. No one had pity on them. They know what it means to be the lost. But the hope now to hear a story, to not be an outcast, to be welcomed back as sons and daughters again and not just despised among their fellow neighbors, this story would be good news to them. And praise God for that. But there's another half to the audience as well. Chapter 15, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, or about Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Right? I imagine the same disdain as hearing about the young man who wants to eat the pig slop. He wanted to eat pig slop. Like Jesus eats with sinners? Gross, right? So far in, this, in these parables, it seems like when there is good news to the lowly, not far behind, there is grumbling or complaining from lofty religious leaders. Right? Jesus knows this very well, and he's not done with this parable. Remember, there's two sons in the story. Verse 25, now the, the father, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home. Your father has even killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. What was his response? But he was angry and refused to go in. Is anyone here the oldest in their family? <laughs> After this story, you're like, not me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the responsible ones, right? Like, you guys got it, right? Well, this older son, he's ticked, right? <laughs> the elder, right? His foolish younger brother went off somewhere, probably dead in a ditch or selling falafels out of the back of a wagon or something. But he, the oldest, he has stayed faithful. He has plans, aspirations. In fact, he's been noticing how his father has been saving the fattened calf. Oh, the plans he has for old Betsy. Traditionally, it would be like his wedding day or some kind of celebration of how awesome he is because don't miss this. Who owns the calf? The brother, right? The calf is his. In the beginning of the story, we are told the father divided his inheritance in half. Everything he has to the both brothers. The one squandered it, so that means everything left is the older brothers. This was not the father's calf to kill. This was the oldest son's fattened calf. And in all respects, everything was the older son's now. How could the father betray him like this? His brother betrayed their father, and now the father has betrayed him, which just furthers and elevates his status of being the only righteous one. So he's angry and refuses to go into the celebration. Now, I told you I'd ask you this question twice. Question again, how does the father react to this son? The text says, his father came out and entreated him. The NIV translated, his father went out and pleaded with him. Right, the father went out and pleaded with him to come celebrate. He didn't scold him or kick him out, but begged him to see this as a good thing. Now, what's fascinating, and this gets, we're just going to, just surface level. You can go deep with this, right? But the, the root Greek word for these words, entreated, pleaded, is the word, is the Greek word parakletos. You guys heard that before? Parakletos? Parakletos, this is so fascinating. 
It's the same root word as used to describe the Holy Spirit. This is where we get words like this, comforter, helper, or advocate. All of those are from parakletos, right? The one who softens hearts, convicts and comforts, helps and stands in the gap. The Father here being this, he's pleading, he's being the advocate here between the two brothers. 29, but he, the older brother, answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Like, Father, what has obeying you ever amounted to? Right? What has it, what has it ever done for me? This Father has never done this kind of celebration for me, and I've tried to do everything right. So now the elder brother, where does he stand? He stands as the accuser, as the judge, right? He accuses his father for never celebrating him, and he's not done. And verse 30, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now who's he accusing? The younger brother. When he tore this family apart and stealing what was rightfully mine. Verse 31, the father replies, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Did you notice how the older brother refers to the younger? When this son of yours came. He doesn't even acknowledge this is his own brother. He's written him off, disowned him, even when his own father did not. But the father in his pleading, in his advocating, says, for your brother was dead and is alive. Your brother was lost and is found. This is why we're celebrating, because he is your brother, not because of what he has done. And then the story ends, right? No bow tie at the end, no like, oh, like the older brother falls to his knees, repentant story, right? But this is what Jesus does so well. He tells these brilliant stories, not just to prove a point, but to show a totally different set of values and leaves his audience at wonder at what are the next steps then. The father's values in this story wasn't the inheritance, wasn't the actions, it was that he has two sons, one family. They were brothers and he was their father. Even when he gave away everything that he owed them, he was still their father. Both sons were different and did different things, but his goal was always to be wastefully extravagant on both sons. He gave them both all of his inheritance. He welcomed them both to partake because his goal was the family. And after giving away the inheritance, the only thing he had left to offer was himself, right? His love. Now, stepping out of the parable, going back into our context, we have two different groups here, right? Tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes. And he has been growing this argument, not of what makes sense on paper, but what God, the Father's heart, has been for his people, Look, it, it, earlier in chapter 15, right before this, you'll see two smaller parables right before this one. Jesus has been teaching these short stories. He's like, uh, the father's heart is like uh, when a man has a hundred sheep, but one goes missing. He leaves the 99 to find the one. What? 
Like, who does that? <laughs> That's so not what you would do. You would stay with what you have instead of you might lose all of that to find the one. That's ridiculous. That's a foolish thing to do. That is a wasteful extravagance to give up what you have to find something so seemingly insignificant. Well, yes, it's exactly that. In fact, it's like a woman who has 10 coins, but she loses one and and goes to great lengths to find the one. And when she finds it, she throws a party with her neighbors because she found the lost coin. That is a crazy person thing to do, right? Like that's the crazy neighbor lady (laughs) that found the one coin. It's like, lady, you still have nine. These aren't logical stories, right? These stories don't make sense. They are heart of God stories, values of the kingdom of God stories. And of course, as the Pharisees and scribes are thinking, this Jesus is nuts. (laughs) He's crazy. Jesus goes on to tell him, okay, it's like a man has two sons. (laughs) Creating yet again two categories of the lost or the found. And I would recommend a book to you here. There's lots of books on this, but Tim Keller has an amazing book called Prodigal God that I would recommend to you. But he, in, in his book, he kind of brings up, like, obviously, in, the, in the, the lost category, the younger sons here is the tax collectors and the sinners. They're kind of, he calls it the self-discovery group, right? It's a group that needs to kind of go and figure it out on their own. And then the found older sons are kind of the Pharisees and scribes representing this moralistically righteous group, right? Now, Jesus says much of the younger son because it's the quintessential sinner, The one who forsakes his family lives a debased and immoral life, squandering everything and only thinking of trying to find and please the self. We can all relate to that kind of sinner. Like we've either been that or we've seen that, right? And again, in our context, the Pharisees and the scribes would be hearing the younger son's story thinking, yes, what a sinner. We would never do that. This is the obvious sinful lifestyle, the one that is far away and labeled bad. So Jesus paints the picture of yet another category that is different and yet just as far off, the moralistically righteous group. This is a quote from Keller's book I thought was really key. Why doesn't the elder brother go in? He himself gives the reason, because I've never disobeyed you. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It's not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's his pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. See, both brothers were using the father for their own ends. One one only wanted to benefit of the father to then go and live their life The other saw their self-righteousness as a basis for their blessing. One is repentant and returns. One is unrepentant and refuses to go in. But both are loved by the Father. This parable confronts two issues. First, that the heart of God is not rational, right? It's not logical. It's not a conclusion of if you do good, they're blessed. If they do bad, they're cursed anymore. That was the perceived old law, but Jesus is teaching the new heart of the law. The heart of God is for everyone who would humble themselves and come after him. In fact, he got into this large string of parables. Jesus called this out in Luke 9. If you go back, Peter confesses, Lord, you are the Christ. And Jesus, Jesus predicts what is going to happen. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by who? The older brothers. 
the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said this to all. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Right, That is the great hope built into the narrative of the prodigal son. Anyone can deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. It's never too late to lose your life to find it in Jesus. Take up your cross, this cultural portrayal of self-sacrifice. Even going back to last week when Randall kind of walked us through what Jesus saying strong words and back in chapter 14, like if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And if you want to unpack that more, I'd encourage you to listen to Randall's sermon last week. But to take up your cross is akin to this daily death sentence, symbolic of how Jesus' followers are to live solely dependent and committed to him. And secondly, the second thing this, this parable does, Jesus had been pleading with the Pharisees, pleading with them to see these sinners as their brothers. Right? At one point, their ancestors were all wandering the desert together. They were all in exile together. Right? All considered the remnant of Israel together. The one nation of Israel descended from Father Abraham, but now it has been torn into this great divide down the middle of status how they're perceived before God, either blessed for their life or cursed for their life. The elder brother in the story was the head of the household. He held the future inheritance. Everything belonged to him. The estate, the servants, the fields, but he wasn't acting like a patriarch in the nation of Israel should. Right? He was being schooled in compassion by his father. His father pleaded with him, advocated for the younger son to act like he would, to see his other brother, not as a sinner, but as a brother in a family. See, the heart of God is for all his children to come to him, the lofty down from their mountains and the lowly to be lifted up from the gutter, not just to flip the script and, fling, and swing the pendulum, but to meet them both in the middle as sons and daughters of God. So to conclude today, I believe there's obviously so much good and, and so much benefit to diving into this story. My, my brother-in-law, Tim, calls it a jewel. You shine a light on any part of the story, and it's going to be so good and so clear. And probably everything you've been taught about the story is true. But either way, what, when you come to the right conclusion of this story, you see the Father's heart for his family. We, church, have a good Father who wants his family to be one. We can have that same attitude as part of God's family where we are at welcoming those who would desire to know God and to celebrate in such a big way with them because we were all once lost and in Jesus found. And it's only because of his grace. So that means we have nothing left to give out but grace. Now here's another incredible truth that I just I can't not say. No matter where you're at today, if you put your faith, or if you have put your faith in Jesus as a son of God, who emptied himself to the point of death on the cross, to defeat sin and bring life where there was only death, then you are welcomed with open arms into the family of God. 
whether you identify with the prodigal, come home with this baggage past, unworthy, or whether you've been here the whole time and you say, about time, God, where's my blessings, right? And you're angry that it hasn't amounted to much. You are both welcome and adopted into the family of God. The good father runs to you and throws his arms around you. This is something you receive from the father, not based on merit. And then the father pleads with you to enter into his feast and to celebrate. So this is something to be received, but it's also something to be given and shared. The way we keep ourselves from becoming the in or like the elder brother in this story is to see others as our brothers and sisters, welcoming them in as a rational and abounding in love as the example of the Father. So I want to end with the Apostle Paul's encouraging words on this truth, on, on God's heart for calling his people to be one in this one great family. This is Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Amen? So good. We're going to respond to that truth today. And we sing and we pray and we give. And when you have communion in your hands, remember, remember that line. In him, we have redemption through his blood. It's his body. It's his blood that we remember on the cross through the cup and the cracker. Let's worship him today in our response. Would you pray with me?